0: Imagine with me, if you will, for a moment, a single leaf of romaine lettuce. The seed for this lettuce was planted in late April. The cool temperatures of late April and early May allow the plant to thrive. Long hours of sunlight without the scorching heat, regular doses of water from the rain or an attentive gardener, these are exactly what a head of romaine needs to thrive. But then, come late May, the temperatures start to heat up. And one cool morning, before the sun gets hot, the gardener did what gardeners do. He harvested the head of lettuce, chopped it off. And in the process, the single leaf was dropped to the ground. What do you suppose is going to happen to that single leaf of lettuce? Now, if you think it's going to be snatched up by a rodent, you might be right. Although, in my experience, typically rabbits and fellow furry fiends prefer things like bean shoots and pea sprouts over lettuce, which the movies say they should like. <clears throat> I wish they would eat my lettuce. <laughs> Most likely if that lettuce, that, that single leaf of lettuce doesn't get picked up and thrown in the compost pile or eaten by some roving herbivore, that single leaf of lettuce will rapidly wilt And become something that looks less than appetizing. And in a day or two will become less than nothing. It will just disintegrate there on the ground. Become nothing. Some people are like that. There's a period of time in which they appear to be thriving and flourishing. And that things are going well for them. And then all of a sudden. Seemingly all of a sudden. They wither and they perish. This God says is the destiny of all the wicked. And that's the message which Psalm 37 makes clear. The first two verses of Psalm 37 say this It's of David. He says, Fret not yourself because of evildoers. Do not be envious of wrongdoers, for they will soon fade like the grass and wither like the green herb. As we examine Psalm 37 over the course of the next two weeks, we are gonna break our study into two parts. Examining the twin <laughs> themes of this psalm, this week we'll look at the command to not worry about the wicked. And next week, Lord willing, we're going to look at the flip side. Do pursue righteousness. Do pursue faithfulness. These two commands belong together. They're, they're both interwoven all the way through Psalm 37, but this week we're going to start in the same place the psalmist does. Do not worry about the wicked. And you might notice if you're reading there along in Psalm 37 that I said, don't worry, but what most English translations say is do not fret yourself because of evildoers. What is fretting? Brown Driver Briggs, which is like the standard Hebrew to English lexicon, defines this word as meaning to like have a burning on the inside, to be kindled, to be angry. Uh, The Christian Standard Bible translates it as, do not be agitated. One other translation says, do not be upset. Words take on different nuances with their context, but I think if we put these things together, we start to get an idea taking shape for us. What David is concerned about as he writes this psalm is not just like a a vague or a low-level worry that you have when... They're thinking, man, I'd really like some sunshine next week, but if there's some rain in the forecast, and I'm kind of worried. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about a type of worrying and upset concern and agitation that things are going well for those guys over there, and it's making me displeased. He's talking about being bent out of shape when things go well for those who clearly are doing wrong, for those who are evil? Why are things going well for them? And if that's our definition of fretting, of worry, then it becomes pretty obvious, pretty transparent that we live in a world consumed with fret. I'm not going to burden you with examples, but think about the headlines you've read recently, regardless of where you read them. Were they geared to help you calmly, carefully consider the issues at hand Or were they written in such a way as to provoke fear about the bad people over there and the bad things that they are doing? This sort of fear-mongering, obsession over whatever we define as evil. And of course, evil is a term that's used by everybody in our society, and it's changed the, the definition shifts, right, with whatever your particular politics or worldview is. But However you define evil, thinking about it absorbs so much of our time and attention as a society. But David, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says it shouldn't. He doesn't say, stand aghast at the evildoer. He doesn't say, get worked into a tizzy by the wrongdoer. He says, fret not. Why don't we need to fret? Why are anxious worries and fearful agitation forbidden. David gives us two reasons. The first one is short, and that's it's where worry is going to lead you. Verse 8, he says, "Refrain from anger and forsake wrath. Fret not yourself, and here's the reason: it tends only to evil." Fretting tends only to evil. What does that mean? Well, think about where a fretting mindset, a fearful, worried, agitated mindset leads you fretting is as i've said in in some sense an obsession in some sense an obsession there we go over the thing that you are fearful of or agitated by and and when you're agitated by someone who's doing wrong someone who's doing evil the temptation can be then to envy that person who angers you and david warns against that very thing in verse 1 be not envious of wrongdoers Someone cheats on a test at school and gets a better grade than you, even though you were honest. Someone pads their resume and gets the job that you had hoped for. That guy down the street cheats on his taxes, and with the proceeds of his misdeeds, he's able to buy a boat. There's any number of situations in life where someone does something wrong, and it seems like they get away with it. And not only do they get away with it, but so often in this life, it seems like people do wrong and not, they don't just like skate by and don't get caught, but it seems like they benefit from their evil and from their wrongdoing. And then we think, well, what gives with that? Like, I'm trying to do things the wrong way. Why can't I have the boat? Why didn't I get the job that I really deserved? Why didn't I get the scholarship that the cheater got because of their excellent grades? When we see injustice in the world, it's not just the injustice itself that rubs us the wrong way. It's the feeling that they are getting what I deserve. They have the power that I should have. They have the influence that I should have. They have the blessings that I should have. And allowing yourself to stew and fret about bad people and what they have and why they don't deserve it in the end will lead you down the road to becoming the very sort of person that you are agitated by. You you become okay with cheating, lying, fudging the truth, or being ruthless because that's just how you get things done in this world. God doesn't want wickedness from his children under any circumstances. Instead, we're told to follow the example of the Lord Jesus, who 1 Peter 2.23 says, when he was reviled, did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. As we saw last week in the book of James, this doesn't mean we simply acquire a stiff upper lip and pretend the suffering isn't real. I mean, we read out of Psalm 69 there this morning, right? He knows that there is suffering and that the people who are inflicting it on him are evil and he goes to God with that. He's not pretending it's not there. But it does mean that a Christian response to suffering and to those who inflict it, the evildoer, the wrongdoer, is different than a worldly response. And we can respond differently because we know what ultimately comes of evil. And the second reason that David gives us for not fretting about wicked people and wickedness is that we know where it leads. Wickedness does not work in the long run. This is the message of verse 2. The evildoer, the wrongdoer, they will soon fade like the grass and wither like the green herb. But that verse doesn't stand in isolation in Psalm 37. Verse 9 says, evildoers shall be cut off. They will not last. And that time is not far off. Verse 10 says, in just a little while, the wicked will be no more. Though you look carefully at his place, he will not be there. You'll be able to search carefully, inquire diligently, scour meticulously, and you won't be able to find any wickedness around. How confident is God that a day like that is coming? Confident enough to laugh. Verse 12. The wicked plots against the righteous and gnashes his teeth at him. The Lord laughs at the wicked For he sees that his day is coming. We see gnashing teeth. We see opposition coming against us. What's our natural response? Either we get fearful and we run away from it, or we want to respond in kind. We fight fire with fire, as it were. But if we are to imitate our heavenly father, when we see opposition coming at us, we should chuckle. The righteous will endure upon the land because they are upheld by God's own strength, verse 17 says. So why should we be afraid of the cilantro that perishes? You ever seen cilantro at the grocery store about half the time? It's just like, "Mm." that's the wicked in God's eyes. Fretting over evildoers is like being afraid in the produce aisle. It's afraid of being attacked by parsley and sage. When the rock of ages has promised you his protection, we should laugh at the herbs, not fear them. But those chives are armed, you might say. Fear not, says David. We do not need to fear the weapons they wield. Verses 14 and 15. The wicked draw the sword and bend their bows to bring down the poor and needy, to slay those who are upright, their sword shall enter their own heart their bows shall be broken yes they are armed absolutely no that is not a final cause for worry the worst they can do is kill you Matthew 10 <clears throat> Matthew 10 beginning in verse 26 Jesus says, so have no fear of them, for nothing is covered that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. What I tell you in the dark, say in the light, and what you hear whispered, proclaim on the housetops. And do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both body and soul in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? and not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. We live in a day filled with fear and fretting and worry. And many Christians are afraid. Afraid of the cultural disintegration that we're witnessing. Afraid of changing attitudes towards the Bible, biblical standards of truth, biblical morality. Afraid of the possibility of political pressure and maybe even persecution. And we ought to be like awake and alert to these realities, right? The, uh, Solomon in Ecclesiastes says it's better to be wise than to be a fool. Just like it's better to have eyes in your head, you know. It's, but there is there is a mile of difference between being awake and alert and seeing the world as it is, and fear. Isaiah 8, verse 13 says, The Lord of hosts, him you shall honor as holy. Let him be your fear, and let him be your dread. Why? Because God alone endures. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, Proverbs nine ten. Proverbs 1, 7, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. He's the only one worth fearing because he's the only one who lasts. The wicked don't last. Back in Psalm 37, verse 17 says, The arms of the wicked shall be broken. And verse 20, the wicked will perish. The enemies of the Lord are like the green pastures. They vanish like smoke. They vanish away. The enemies of the Lord have a season. But their season is short. Psalm 1 describes the man who doesn't walk according to the counsel of the wicked, doesn't stand in the seat of mockers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and says he's like a tree planted by streams of water that bears its fruit in its season. But here in Psalm 37, the wicked are called grass and smoke. This is hard for us to internalize because we judge by what our eyes see. We look at the world as it is right now, and we think that is reality. We think right now is the realest thing there is. But right now is passing away. There is coming a day when those who are cursed by him, cursed by the Lord, verse 22 says, they shall be cut off. Maybe, maybe your, your insides, your heart, you protest like, that's ah, not myself I'm worried for. I'm worried for my kids. I'm worried for my grandkids. And the world that they're born into. I'm fretting not because of how evil will affect me. But I'm fretting because of the effects on my kids and my grandkids. And that can feel like an emotionally powerful objection. Doesn't God care about my grandkids? Shouldn't we be fighting for them? Of course, we should want the best for our kids and our grandkids. That's that's our job, right? But fretting is not the path towards their best future. Pursuing personal righteousness and loving justice is. Verse 28 says, For the Lord loves justice. He will not forsake his saints. They are preserved forever, but the children of the wicked shall be cut off. It's not the children of the mighty or the culturally powerful who are preserved by God. It's the children of the saints, his holy ones. Are you concerned with the future of your children? Then do not fret. Follow the Lord boldly. And this is going to require patience on the part of us as God's people. We want everything fixed now. We pray in the Lord's prayer, your kingdom come, your will be done, and we want it pronto, right? We, we pray with John at the end of Revelation, come. Quickly, Lord Jesus. And those are right desires. But we have to remember that in God's eternal timeline, Jesus is coming quickly. His kingdom, his rule is coming quickly. But he doesn't measure time the way we do. With the Lord, a day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as a day. He is not slow as some count slowness, but he is patient. And as his people, we too must be patient. There is coming a day when we will see the destruction of all wickedness. Verse 34, wait for the Lord and keep his way and he will exalt you to inherit the land. You will look on when the wicked are cut off. In the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 2, the apostle Paul says that the saints will one day judge the world Not just the world, verse 3 of 1 Corinthians 6 says that we will judge the angels. And Paul wasn't innovating when he said this. In Daniel chapter 7, Daniel's given a vision of the end times. And he sees someone coming who would make war on the saints and prevail over them. But his success, the success of evil, was temporary. Daniel chapter 7, verses 21 and 22 says... As I looked, this horn, this one that was raised up, made war with the saints and prevailed over them until the Ancient of Days came and judgment was given for the saints of the Most High and the time came when the saints possessed the kingdom. When the time comes for God's people to inherit the land. For the saints to possess the kingdom, for the meek to inherit the earth, it is at that point we will see wickedness cut off. And David concedes that, like, this is hard for us to see right now. This is hard for us with our human eyes. Sometimes it seems like the wicked, being wicked and being sinful really pays. Verse 35 of chapter 37 of Psalms I've seen the wicked, ruthless man spreading himself like a green laurel tree And we read thought, quoted from Psalm 1 right it's it's the righteous who's supposed to be the tree right not the wicked but here the wicked spreads himself like a green laurel tree but he's not a tree planted by God. His roots aren't very deep. And because he is exalting himself, his exaltation is fleeting. Verse 36, but he passed away and behold, he was no more. Though I sought him, he could not be found. The ESV footnotes, the beginning of of verse 36 could be translated rather than he passed away. It could be translated as one passed by, like somebody was walking by that same spot. And the feeling we get then is that as somebody is walking by this place where there was this great big tree and you, you walk by and you go... Oh, where'd it go? It's gone. This great thing has vanished. Think of the worst examples of evil that you can imagine. The 20th century gave us all kinds of awful examples, right? Lenin, Stalin, Mussolini, Hitler, Mao, Pol Pot. How many are still alive? The evil they practiced, the pain they inflicted was absolutely real, and it was horrific but it was also limited no matter how genuinely awful and evil human being is their time on this earth comes to an end. Their great laurel tree disappears. The statues in their honor come to nothing. Verse 38 says, but transgressors shall be altogether destroyed. The future of the wicked shall be cut off. And as Hebrews 9.27 reminds us, after they die, after death, comes judgment. They will face God for what they have done. And those who die while continuing in their rebellion against God will ultimately one day be cast into the lake of fire, Revelation 20 and verse 15. This is where a Christian view of the world stands in stark contrast to the human ideologies of our day or any other day. Because if we're caught up in the the ideologies of our world that say we have to accomplish justice, we have to bring justice about, then of course we're going to run around like our hair is on fire trying to deal with the evil people and the evil things that they are doing. What will be done about them? How can we fight for our rights so that they can't get to us too? But Christian worldview realizes that while evil human beings are a problem, indeed they are the problem. Romans 8 says that creation itself groans under the weight of the curse on us. It's not really a they problem. It's a we problem. To quote the old cartoon, we have seen the enemy and he is us. Apart from God... Each of us is wicked, selfish, and seeking our own advantage. That 1 Corinthians 6 passage quoted earlier, if you go down to verse 9 in that passage, 1 Corinthians 6, beginning in verse 9, says, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. Some of those first Christians and some of us today were guilty of sexual immorality, adultery, idolatry, homosexuality, theft, greed, drunkenness, reviling, and dishonest business practices, swindling. All of us. All, period, full stop, all of us were born dead in our trespasses, naturally following the prince of the power of the air, Satan. Which is to say, we are all, just like Jesus said to the Pharisees in John chapter 8, we're all Satan's spawn, living in the thrall under the control of the devil. We are all the very evildoers and wrongdoers that are promised God's punishment. But God, but God being rich in mercy, makes us alive, washes us, sanctifies us by his spirit. If you place your trust in Jesus, the only truly righteous man, the God-man who died in your place and rose victoriously from the grave on the third day and now sits exalted at the Father's right hand. Then he will cleanse you by his spirit and make you, as it says in Psalm 37, a saint, a set-apart one, one of his holy people, someone who has promised not God's curses, but God's blessings. That's not something you can earn or accomplish. It's a free gift that he gives to all who trust in Jesus. If we recognize, if you recognize that the problem with evil in the world is ultimately that a a problem that rests just as much in your own chest as it does in the heart of the most evil person you can think of, then you can begin to recognize that bringing about cosmic justice, fixing the evil in the world is something you can't bring about by your own power. You cannot fret sin out of the world. You can't even fret it out of your own mirror. It took the death of God's son to pay for your sin. And it takes the continual work of his spirit to daily cleanse you from sin. There is not an evil deed in this world which will go unpunished. Either it was paid for by Christ on the cross, and the perpetrator will receive God's forgiveness by faith which is precisely my only hope and your only hope for eternal life, that he will forgive our evil deeds by faith in Christ, or he will be punished by the perpetrator suffering God's wrath eternally in the lake of fire. The wicked may seem like a great green tree right now, but they really are more like a blade of grass. Here today, trampled, brown, and burned tomorrow. So who do you trust? Do you trust your own sense of justice and your own capacity to bring that justice about? Or will you trust in the Lord of all the earth to do what is right? It's easy to say, and it's hard to do. We talked last week about the fact that trusting the Lord in the face of hardship is not easy. So too in the face of evil and the evildoer. It can involve very pointed prayers. Psalm 38, David says, My foes are vigorous. They are mighty. Many are those who hate me wrongfully. We read in Psalm 68 or 69 this morning, 69, that he was asking God to punish his enemies. It's like, speed up this judgment piece, God. In Revelation chapter 6, we read of the souls of those who have been killed for their testimony to Christ. And in Revelation 6, verse 10, they cry out in a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? They want to know, how long does evil keep winning? How long does evil seem to keep spreading through the world? How long, O Lord, will you allow your saints to be trampled upon? How long will justice seem to fail? And the answer they receive is instructive. Verse 11 of Revelation 6 says, They were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete, who were to be killed as they themselves had been. It seems there in Revelation 6 that there are a certain number of God's children marked for death. And until that number is reached, It will still look like evil is winning until it's time for God to give his saints the kingdom. And until that day, we keep trusting Jesus. As we'll look at next week, we keep pursuing righteousness. Because while it does at times look like evil is winning, good is moving through the world as well. The gospel is advancing. God is transforming hearts and minds and communities. We keep clinging to the promises of God in Christ and trust that God will bring good about through our positive actions and faithfulness. Do not worry about the wicked. Do not be agitated about their present prosperity. Their judgment will come. And so too, precious saints, will our time of blessing. Jesus says to his disciples in Luke twelve, thirty two, fear not, little flock. For it is the Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Would you pray with me? Father God, we thank you that it is your good pleasure to give an immeasurably great kingdom to such as us. We could never deserve that, and yet because you have put us in Christ, for though all who have trusted in Jesus, we've become one with your Son. We receive his promise of eternal life and an eternal kingdom and joy everlasting. We thank you that sin doesn't win. Evil will not prevail in the end. Though the, the night seems very dark, daylight is coming. We thank you for your son, Jesus, who is the light, who has come into the darkness. We thank you that one day he will return with justice in his train. Pray these things in his precious name. Amen.